You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, we have got entirely too much to cover here. Um, first of all, I want to apologize for the days getting away from me. I wanted to give you score predictions for Saturday, and that would be kind of useless right now. But um, one of the things I want to do is to get you the score predictions for tomorrow. I want to talk a little bit more about the Packers' defense. There's a couple other things that have come to light, first of all, our very own Sam Holman has done an article on that in which he put me in the article, so I appreciate that. Um, very in-depth, very detailed. I want to go over that. Also, the um, revelation that I had come to about the secondary, you know, dedicating less resources to the pass rush endeavor led to increased pass rush. The uh, data community, the stats community, the nerd community – they were listening to me say that and said, duh, dummy, we've known that for a long time. I'll get you that information in a little bit. That, is, that has been a well-known fact in the data community for a long time. Makes me wonder why we didn't commit to that sooner, but um, it really just kind of goes to show um, that once we dedicated our resources to creating an elite secondary, our defense as a whole went through the roof because that's what, again, the uh, nerd community has known for a very long time, is the way to win football games. Uh, what else? Oh, the uh, the Lions are going to run wild on the Packers narrative is continuing, and it's annoying me more than ever. In fact, speaking of annoying me, this crew over on uh, NFL.com, whatever, Rachel Bonetta, Patrick Claiborne, Cynthia Freeland, and Greg Rosenthal continue to annoy the crap out of me. And by that, what I mean is almost 99% of that annoyance comes from Greg Rosenthal. He is the most obnoxious snobbish, know-it-all, but actually doesn't know anything guy on planet Earth. Rachel Bonetta, I like. Not in this clip, but I feel like she doesn't try to be a friggin' know-it-all like Rosenthal. She's just having fun and doing whatever. Cynthia Freeland is a numbers person. Very realistic, very down-to-earth. I have no idea who Patrick Claiborne is, but the fact that this entire show, they're talking about how desperately like why would you pick the Packers we hate the Packers we all want the Lions to win how could you do this this is horrible like it, it the whole theme of this segment drives me nuts I appreciate the honesty I do because I think a lot of other shows that we play that pick the Lions and try to sound unbiased are really not they really dislike the Packers and I know it's 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 this crew because it was it's it's Rosenthal and there was another guy I don't remember his name, but if I, I, I could picture his face, that flat out said, I'm sick of the Packers, I don't like the Packers, I'm tired of the Packers. I think that is the theme. So I want to start with this. I, I, I got so annoyed, I said, all right, you know what, I'm going to tell you how many yards the Lions are going to run for. I went and did the math the same way I do my score predictions. I looked at how much the Packer, or the, the Lions run for, I looked at the Packers' defense, I looked at their DVOA to find out how much better or worse than the average rushing attack they are. Same with the Packers' defense. I looked at home, and I looked at away, and I looked at all these different things to try to come up with some numbers that make sense for how much the Lions are going to run for. But again, here is um, where this all stems from. 
We'll just start it from the beginning because the whole thing is just gushing about the Lions. Because <laughs> it might not last. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Greg, a huge game for the team of ATN. This is America's team, people. Detroit Lions uh, in a Week 18 finale. Can they go into Lambeau and keep the Packers out of the playoffs? Can I just... I go, I, I'm happy for you, Detroit. But we, we have hard knocks every year. I've never seen hard knocks make people so crazy ever. Dallas has always been America's team, and then you got a bunch of other teams vying for it, like the Packers and the Patriots and everybody else. Like, no, we should be America's team. Whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, America's team is usually a pretty dominant team that has a massive fan base. The Lions have been a garbage team that nobody likes for literally eternity. Nobody cares about the Lions. Nobody likes the Lions. They're a garbage organization that has been run like garbage since forever. They are an 8-8 eight and eight football team this year. Packers too, but the Packers, it's like, this is everybody's like, well, this, this year is garbage. They don't even belong in the playoffs. But yet the Lions, they might, might, if they win, and probably won't, have a winning season. If they lose, which they probably will, they will be an 8-9 and nine football team, and we're acting like this is the greatest thing, America's team, blah, blah, blah. This is so stupid. Can we freaking calm down the fighting Dan Campbells? Really? Really? That's what we're doing? And Jared Goff, we're going to pump him up? And, and what? I mean, who, who even is like the... I mean, it's Jamal Williams. Jamal Williams is like the main face of the franchise, which I'm sorry, and I'm glad he's got so many touchdowns. Jamal Williams is the most mediocre running back on planet Earth. I love Jamal Williams as a person. I would take him back here in a second. He runs hard. I love his energy. Great locker room guy. As a running back, they don't make him more mediocre than Jamal Williams. And if you take away all his goal line sniping touchdowns, the guy hasn't done very much this year, okay? You look at his yards per attempt and everything else, he is an average running back. I feel like the entire season has been building to this game, to yes, this moment, to this pick of me taking the lines to win this game. <laughs> Let's go, baby! 23 uh, to 20. Look, uh, this was a week uh, where I could talk about the great running game that the Lions have, and they will run all, all. They don't have a great running game. All over the Packers, DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams, but I... They will... <laughs> Let me play that one more time, just, just because it, it's so obnoxious. Uh, this was a week uh, where I could talk about the great running game that the Lions have, and they will run all, all over the Packers, DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams. But I Okay. All right. Look, I don't, I don't know where this comes from. I don't get it. I, again, I, I, the only thing I can think is fantasy football. Jamal Williams has a billion touchdowns. DeAndre Swift, I don't know. Maybe he's doing things in fact. I, I haven't. This is the first year I haven't played since 2009. Probably won't ever play again. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going on in fantasy, but I can only assume that it is completely rotting everybody's brain from the inside out and making them think nonsense. In what universe? In what universe do the Lions have an elite rushing attack, and you can guarantee will run all over the Packers based on what? They are the 15th ranked rushing attack via yards per attempt 15th number five offense in terms of points number four in terms of yards they are the 15th ranked rushing offense the the fifth ranked passing offense that is good passing team perfectly mediocre rushing team if you look at pff deandre swift is ranked 27th jamal williams 
is ranked 39th. A.J. Dillon, by the way, 13th. Aaron Jones, 7th. If you look at uh, just raw total yards, Jamal Williams almost has 1,000 yards. Aaron Jones, by the way, already does. But that's largely because Jamal Williams has run the ball more than just about anybody else. He's 8th in total carries this year. In terms of yards per attempt, he's at 4.0 yards per attempt. That's tied for 43rd in the league. So yes, he leads the league in touchdowns, 15 touchdowns. There's, There's really... Nothing else going on that's interesting. Yards after contact per attempt, DeAndre Swift ranks 18th. Aaron Jones is higher. Missed tackles forced. You would assume Jamal would be really high because he's such a bruiser and because he's run the ball so many times. He ranks 25th. Uh, Aaron Jones is 6th. Total number of 10-yard-plus carries. Jamal Williams is 18th. Aaron Jones, by the way, 7th. Even looking at receiving, which is another thing I've heard, DeAndre Swift is becoming a, a, an elite receiving back. He ranks 32nd as far as his receiving grade. Christian McCaffrey is an elite receiving back. DeAndre Swift is not. He has a 61 receiving grade. Aaron Jones, by the way, is 13th as a receiver. So there's nothing really fantastic about any of these running backs. There's nothing fantastic about their rushing ability, their yards per attempt. They run the ball plenty. They're 11th in, in rushing attempts but 15th in yards per attempt. So, so, so what are you talking about? What, where did this come from? Can anybody explain to me where this is coming from, that the Detroit Lions have an elite rushing attack? The only thing I can think, aside from the fantasy football thing, is they ran for 265 yards against the Bears, which is their highest rushing total of the season. And because everyone's a complete idiot, they see last week and just think, dang, they're a really good rushing team, despite the fact that they ran for 45 yards against Carolina the, the week prior, and the fact that they've never run for anything even close to 265 yards before. They've never even cracked 200 yards prior to that game. But yes, the Chicago Bears, with the 29th-ranked run defense that I'm sure is getting worse by the week, in other words, I wouldn't be surprised if they are the worst right now, gave up a massive amount of rushing yards to this team. And by the way, they won 41-10, to 10, so it was probably starting in the second half. The, the uh, Detroit Lions didn't pass the ball even once. In fact, this is one of their lowest passing games of the entire season. Is it because they have a trash passing attack? Are we going to stick with this thing where last week is all that matters? Well, no. We, we look at it for what it is. So you can almost take that 265 and throw it right in the garbage. 45, 107, 134, 196. This is what they've done going back through week 12. Then they had 160 against the Giants, then 95, 117, 82, 117, 101. I mean, they, they actually started the season fine, 145, 139, 191, 181. But since then, they haven't done anything. By the way, I looked at it, the average is 120. How many times have they hit that? 101, no. 117, no. 82, no. 117, no. 95, no. 160, yes. 96, no. 100, no. 134, yes. 107, no. 45, no. And then the 265. So like three times since week four, they've, they've cracked the average of 120 yards in a game. And I'm supposed to what? Worship them? And of course, the, the snarky, oh, and they will run all over the Packers. I know because I know two, two data points. Number one, the Lions have an elite rushing attack. And number two, the Packers have one of the worst rush defenses in the NFL, which is hilarious considering the 30th ranked run defense is the Detroit Lions. The Packers have a better rushing attack and a better 
run defense. As bad as they are, they rank 27th. And they haven't given up that average of 120 since the bye week. So I want to get into the numbers real quick since I went ahead and did the work and and came up with that. I've got three different numbers for what I think could potentially be the Lions' total rushing numbers. Again, remember, 120 is the average. None of these three even reach 120. The highest I have is if you take the Lions' total yards on the road, On average, they run for 109 yards, 11 below average. However, the Packers' DVOA at home is not great. Don't remember what it is, but it puts them at about 117 yards, just below average. The other is to look at how many yards, on average, the Packers give up at home, and that's 134, which is above average. However, the Vikings' rush DVOA on the road is like a negative 17 or something like that. Drops them down to 110.28 yards. The third is to take the small sample size of the last three weeks and look at the Packers' DVOA from there, which of course is very good. Their run defense is. That would put the Lions' rushing attack at about 92 yards. So if this defense is legit, and this defense we've seen the last three weeks is what you can expect moving forward, then my expectation for this game is the Lions rush for 92 yards. They don't even crack 100. If it's been even, even if you say that's been fraudulent and you expect them to regress, the average for the season is between 110 and 117. We'll split the difference. We'll call it 114, call it 115 to make it a a nice round number. 115 yards. Again, the average is 120. I don't see any data anywhere that leads me to believe that the Lions are going to run all over the Packers. And by the way, I don't think you can say run all over until you get to a minimum of 150. If the average is 120, minimum is 150. And yeah, the Packers have had that a bunch of times. Buffalo, 153. Bears, 155. Dallas, 159. Washington, 166. New England, 167. Jets, 179. Bears, 180. Philly, 363. But three of the five lowest games have come the last three weeks. So again, I, I, this is not... Even without going deep into the nerdiness that I went into, I still don't know where anybody gets this information from. Where, where I mean, okay, the Packers' run defense is bad. Fine. It's debatable, but, but let's stick with that. Explain to me, as a team that hasn't, you know, I, again, if you use this prediction going backwards, basically the Packers' run defense is bad, so every team is going to run wild on them, regardless of Detroit. You would have been wrong talking about the Minnesota. And people did say that about Minnesota. Dalvin Cook is going to run wild. Again, not recognizing that Dalvin hasn't done jack squat this year. Miami, the Rams, nothing. You would have been wrong. Period. So now we come up to the Detroit Lions, who are a heavy passing team with a mediocre rush attack, and you're telling me they're going to run wild on the Packers. Again, I will put the caveat that anything is possible. I'm not debating. I'm not telling you anything definitively. I'm asking you to give me a realistic argument, a rational argument for the, for the reason you believe that's going to happen. There isn't one. It doesn't exist. Anyways, let's go ahead and let these guys finish their thoughts here. But I want to just talk about kind of the attitude that the Lions players have. Deshaun Elliott, uh, the safety of the team, on Friday, really speaking, um, I think what a lot of us believe. The way Aaron Rodgers carries himself, I don't like none of that. Me neither, Deshaun, and I love the way... Whoa. 
Whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> Lions win by 40. The way the Lions carry themselves, and this, this group has. This has really been a, a group endeavor. Uh, yeah. Let's look back a couple weeks, right before the Lions lost the big game. <laughs> and people are saying... This is a picture of all four of them wearing Lions gear. This picture. It was our fault that they lost this game? No. no. I think as a group... And they lost. Like, if we truly believe in the Lions, you got to pick them this week. You know what I mean? It's if you truly believe in the Lions, you probably should pick the Lions this week. But we'll get to that in a second. Oh, what, a, what a way to get into I've got the Packers no! winning this game. I do. Again, he picked the Packers because they're the better team. Everybody understands. The Lions haven't won a primetime game like ever. The Packers never lose primetime games. The Lions don't win in Lambeau. The Packers don't lose in Lambeau. The Packers don't lose December, January. Um, the Packers at home are a great football team. The Lions on the road are a garbage football team. There's no information pointing to the Detroit Lions being the better team. But Patrick Claiborne says, I'm picking the Packers, and everyone says, no! Not because it's the wrong pick in terms of incorrect pick, but because, no, we hate the Packers, which is what they literally go on to say. Uh, and mainly because the Packers were not playing good football. They were playing bad football. This is the start of the Lions' push to the postseason, and Aaron Rodgers was turning the ball over two interceptions in the red zone in the first half, the drive summary from the first. This is what a lot of people that are picking the Packers, by the way, are saying. The, the Packers dominated the Lions in that game, but Aaron Rodgers is throwing picks at the in the end zone. So, I mean, maybe that'll happen again, but probably not. First half. And this is when the Packers sucked was 32 plays, 196 yards, and three turnovers. Uh, they're, not, they're not playing this bad anymore. And even when they were playing this bad, the, the Lions kind of eking things out. And when I've got the Packers here, 26-23. Uh, to 23. I believe in Detroit, and I believe they will try extra hard, but it's just Aaron Rodgers is like that because he wins all the time. It's not, it's, he's not... He's petty like yeah, that. But he's, it's because he's good. Okay, I'm kind of... He's petty like that, yeah. When the, Lions, when the Lions are petty because they don't like Aaron Rodgers, that's awesome, and they're going to win by 40. When Rodgers wins because he doesn't like to lose, he's petty like that. Nervous for this. This is Cynthia Freeland, by the way, who is an actual Lions fan. Why would you ever give Aaron Rodgers any sort of bulletin board material? You know he's reading that, and you know he's going to throw, like, two touchdowns right over the top of Deshaun Elliott. But oh. I do have the Packers winning this game 28-21. to 28-21 to 21. sounds a lot like the score prediction I had for this game, doesn't it? 30-20, 30-23, whatever. Obviously not saying she's ripping me off. She has no idea who I am. What I am saying is, when you use your brain and data, like Cynthia does, because that's her whole thing, you come to the conclusion that the Packers not only win, but relatively comfortably. This is the only actual Lions fan on the whole panel, by the way, as far as I know. I think Rosenthal might be a Bears or Vikings fan. I, I, don't rem I, I know I looked into it at one point because I thought he was, because he's so staunchly anti-Packers constantly. But let's see what Cynthia has to say. Even staying within four and a half. What a bummer. I tried, America. Listen, I'm not sorry. It's not my fault. We want the Lions to win. See, and that was the Packer person that picked the Packer fan saying, we want the Lions to win as they start laughing. Anyways, I don't need to keep going on this. It's just, this is, it just makes me want, I mean, and this is the thing, I don't dislike Detroit, but I'm getting there. 
All right, let's turn our attention to the Packers' defense now. Um, again, I, I don't know where the rushing thing comes from, but let's focus on um, the, really the most important part of the Lions' defense is the, or the, the Lions' rushing attack is the Packers' defense. If it was all a fluke, then yeah, they might run for a decent amount of yards. If this is legit, Lions are going to get embarrassed, and so is everybody that said that they were scared of the Lions' rushing attack. Again, this is an article written over at Wisconsin Sports Heroics by our very own Sam Holman, how Joe Barry has crafted an adaptable defense. It's his look, which I've been waiting for. Uh, Dara gave uh, really good insight with his article. Really been curious about Sam Holman and his thoughts on this, because again, I don't know. This isn't my arena. I can look at certain data points and, and things that PFF and SIS can provide that kind of give some kind of an idea on what they're running, but it's a it's a macro zoomed out view of, you know, man versus zone. And SIS is a little bit more zoomed in, um, cover two man, cover three, whatever. But even that, I mean, it's easier for Sam to just look at it and tell us what's going on. So he starts off just kind of, uh, kind of just laying the baseline for the the reality that the defense has been performing better. Joe Barry's unit has secured nine sacks, two forced fumbles, and seven interceptions over that stretch, talking about obviously since the bye, holding three post-bye opponents to an average of approximately 16.3 points per game. It's a little bit deceptive because of the Vikings game getting 14 point uh, points in garbage time. Uh, if you adjust for that, it, it actually puts the Packers defense at 11.7 points per game allowed. Um, advanced stats back that up. DVOA has them as number three defense. Fourth against the pass, 12th against the run. Another stat often using advanced analytics, expected points added. Uh, also reflects Green Bay's post by def- uh, defensive excellence. From week 15 to 17, the Packers are ranked fifth in total EPA per play, eighth in dropback EPA, eighth in rush EPA. If we adjust the model to exclude some garbage time statistics, when Green Bay's win probability was between 2 and 98%, ideally negotiating some of the meaningless data from the end of the Vikings game, the Packers' defense shifts to second in EPA per play and fourth in dropback EPA and ninth in rush EPA. So second overall defense in EPA per play, fourth in passing, ninth in rushing. For comparison's sake, the same model ranked Green Bay as the 25th defense in EPA per play, 13th in passing, 31st in rushing through weeks uh, 1 through 14. Defensive improvement has been drastic, though it's worth noting the opponents have not provided the highest level of competition. Green Bay has been able to take advantage of ailing offenses, uh, Los Angeles, Miami, Minnesota. Still, the resurgence has been fun, impressive to watch. So that's what we already know. Again, my biggest question is, is there something tangible? Has there actually been a change? And, and, you know, it's possible they made a change and it's not going to really mean anything going forward. Maybe it's taken teams off guard. So they've been preparing for the weeks one through 14 defense. And, and this is just in, you know, they'll, they'll learn to adjust to this new defensive style. I don't know, but I still just need to know that it's not completely fluky. He goes on, what's behind the improvement? Lists a couple things right off the top. Certain shifts in personnel, for example, benching Darnell Savage for a period of time, have contributed. There's been better execution, uh, particularly in the secondary. He says, however, one of the biggest reasons for the defensive improvements seem to be schematic tweaks implemented over the bye. And by the way, I, I want to also make it clear, the improvement from the players could very well have to do with the schematic changes in and of itself. Remember, I gave Joe Barry a hard time for things that were not necessarily his fault. Or, or, you know, we're, we're maybe slightly more removed. It's not just a play-calling thing. It's the fact that his guys are not playing very well. So it works just the same in the opposite. 
If his guys start getting better, from my perspective, I think there's a very good chance that Joe Barry is responsible for that. Putting your guys in the best situation to succeed, making sure that they're prepared, ready, up to speed, and, and doing all the right things, that is part of what the defensive coordinator does. So I think it's entirely possible that not only is the play uh, improving just randomly, but I think maybe some of these tweaks and changes have to do with, with helping out your defense and putting guys in a better position to succeed. And so not only is the scheme better just based on a, a generic play calling thing, but it's better because it's making our players better. He then goes over the the article written by Dara, going over some of the percentages, the the changes. Four uh, percent in cover two went up to seventeen point six, using more cover six, a hybrid of cover uh, quarters and cover two. Again, it's quarters on one half, cover two on the other. Playing that twenty eight percent of the time as a, uh, compared to seven point seven percent prior to the buy. But now he kind of goes into a little bit more depth from a defensive coaching standpoint explaining what some of the benefits of this particular system are. He says there are multiple benefits to spending increased time in cover two, cover six, and their relatives. PFF is probably painting a broad stroke when they report these numbers. Probably so. Obviously, two high safeties help prevent big plays and allow underneath defenders to play more aggressively. However, one of the great advantages of the two high family of coverages is their versatility. I want to stop there for one second because this is something that else I also found kind of interesting. And I, and I don't know why this narrative is emerging either. It, it's weird to me because when I look at this game, it's very simple. Amon Ross St. Brown is the biggest threat that the Packers are going to face. They, they have a great offensive line, and they have a really good receiver in Amon Ross St. Brown, right? Um, but all we're hearing is the Lions rushing attack, number one, and, uh, and, and Jamison Williams, the rookie receiver who I think has one reception on the season so far. And again... Maybe this is his big breakout game, but it's just weird to me that they're so focused on that. However, Jamison is the deep threat. He's the, he's that guy. Now, maybe they use him on some jet sweep and around uh, wide receiver screens just to get the ball in his hand like we did with Christian Watson. But his real threat is that 50-yard pass down the field. So the reason why I'm, I'm even less concerned about that, where everybody keeps talking about maybe that's what they'll do, maybe, maybe, is because against this defense, that's not the best strategy. Remember, I, I talked about this also um, when it when it came to uh, the Packers, if you go up against a cover two team, don't expect Christian Watson to be catching these deep passes down the field necessarily, right? That's not exactly where you want to find it. Now, if they're playing man coverage primarily or, or uh, a lot more than other teams, maybe you would look his way a little bit, right? But this doesn't feel like a Jamison Williams game. This, this feels like an Amon Ross St. Brown game. Which, by the way, I actually did, I don't know, shoot, I hope I still have the numbers up again, me with my closing tabs. But I went through and looked at the success of the team and how it relates to the success of Amon Ross St. Brown. It's not massively drastic, but it's very clear to see that there is a correlation between Amon Ross St. Brown having a good game and the Lions winning as opposed to the opposite. The, the, the difference being Amon Ross St. Brown is good pretty much all the time. So even when they lose, he probably has a good day. The reason I was looking at that is because obviously you have that Justin Jefferson mentality. If we could take him away, I can't help but think the biggest thing you want to do in this game is take away Amon Ross St. Brown to the best of your ability. Now, it may not be as big of a uh, focus. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. But I mean, it's it's a drain on resources to dedicate two guys, for example, to Justin Jefferson or a half a guy or however you want to look at it with these, you know, bracket coverages or whatever. If you don't have to do that, you probably don't want to. But I tell you what, if you can eliminate 
to 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 a relatively high degree, I'm on Ross St. Brown. I don't see any way in the world the Lions have a chance in this game. I'm not saying that's all they have. They do have running backs that are capable, but that is that is the most scary thing about this team is Amon Ross St. Brown, offense or defense. Anyways, continuing on, I know what he said, the biggest advantage is uh, the versatility of the two high family of coverages, cover two, cover six, whatever. He says, because the defensive structure is effectively split in half, defensive coordinators can mix and match coverage variations on demand. If you're worried about crossing routes coming from the strength of the formation, you can play cover eight. I hesitate to read the rest of this paragraph because it's even over my head, I gotta, I'm got. i slowing down like drawing pictures over here. Uh, cover eight is half quarter quarter with a cover two side to the passing strength, putting a more aggressive quarter safety in position to rob those routes coming across the field. If you want to get multiple eyes on a star receiver that the opponent is trying to put in advantageous situations, such as the isolated receiver spot in a three by one, you can play cover six with the half field zone to the single receiver side. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, I did find this though, just to give you a little bit of insight. Uh, and again, I'm I'm I've learned in my older age. I'm an extremely visual learner. It's why I actually I, I think school kind of sucked for me because a lot of times, just with a teacher talking, like I don't know, man, I need someone to draw me a picture. But if 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 school for me was like YouTube videos where they had like those animated pictures showing me stuff, I would have crushed school. It would have been crazy. But I found a picture that's good for me. But I'll I'll read you this about cover eight. This isn't really the crux of what he's saying, but it's an interesting concept nonetheless. Cover eight defenses allow defenses with a run, uh, yeah, allows defenses with a run-heavy game plan to play cover two while also giving themselves the ability on early downs to get nine defenders in the box. One creative way defenses will do this on the snap of the ball, run their safeties down into the box with three different responsibilities based upon what they're seeing. So essentially, based on what I'm seeing in the picture, you've got three linebackers bailing deep. You got your two corners bailing deep. The two safeties are actually running down into the box. Now, in this instance, they're kind of running out into the down and out to the boundary. But again, that may change depending on what you're reading or whatever. But the point is, all these different variations of things that you can do, you can bring the safeties, you can drop the safeties, you can bring one and keep uh, and and drop the other one. You can. There, there's so much interchangeability here. The pre-snap and pro- post-snap, what you're seeing beforehand doesn't mean jack squad. But anyways, he goes on to say, these are just a few examples with cover six, cover eight, cover two, cover four. These are in that family. The DC can manipulate individual techniques to combat offensive tendencies on a more granular level. In other words, you can really narrow down what it is we're trying to take away and utilize these coverages to isolate this one thing. So for example, let's say you got this one guy by the name of Justin Jefferson. If you've gone back and looked at some of the creative way, and that's the thing, if you just try to double cover Justin Jefferson, they can do things about that. I heard Vikings fans complaining about, well, why didn't you just try to, you know, if they're pressing you at the line, why don't you try to use some creative ways with motion and rub routes to get them open? You can. The problem is they jam them on one play, the next play they're playing off. And then they've got the inside linebacker playing bracket coverage. The next time, they've got a safety spinning down to cover them. The next time, it's Jair just in man coverage with safety top over the help, or safety help over the top, not top over the help. Every single time you look at how the Packers took away Justin Jefferson, they're doing something different. You don't know what they're going to do, so you don't know how to take, take it away, which is also why, again, you don't just do one thing. You play man coverage mano a mano every single snap the I, every offensive coordinator in the nfl is going to destroy you but you look at the wide variety of ways i'm even stunned at some of the different times where you look at it and go how did joe barry know to call that right there 
because I, as I'm watching it, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to determine beforehand what I think they're going to do because I'm trying to look from the offensive standpoint. I bet if, if we run a, a, a slant route here, that linebacker is going to do that. And then you'll see the linebacker bail, but it works in this instance because Justin Jefferson doing this. Da, 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 da. It's like, how did you know? Maybe it's just dumb luck. Maybe it's just a really good job of understanding, um, you know, game planning and, and what the Vikings tendencies are, but then calling the exact perfect coverage. It was like, man. It it really just was a freaking masterclass um, at erasing Justin Jefferson. And the only thing I could think is either they got really lucky, this was the best performance by defensive coordinator of the season, or um, the Packers are cheating and tapped into their headsets. Because <laughs> it was pretty stupid. Anyways, he goes on to say, in other words, two high coverages, which is what we're talking about, six, eight, two, four, all the coverages allow defensive coordinators to create layers to the coverage, removing certain coverage stressors and making it hard for offenses to take advantage of individual personnel or leverage matchups. So no matter what it is you're trying to do, we have an adjustment for that. You might be able to catch us once, you will not be able to consistently hit us with this again and again and again and again, which is important because that's when things really suck. When there's no adjustment you can make to fix that, when they just keep doing it over and over, come on. He then says, this week-to-week malleability is one of the biggest reasons the shift in coverage focus has been so successful for Green Bay. Joe Barry has done an excellent job identifying critical schematic needs and leveraging his increased too high coverage structures to negate what offenses want to do. There are multiple examples of this playing out on film. And he goes into that, which we will in a second. But again, just, just to really hone in, again, you want to take away Justin Jefferson? We got a plan for that. You know, it, you you... It's, it's sort of that Bill Belichick thing, right? He says, I'm going to take away your number. Now, I'm not saying that's what the Packers are doing, but like you said, on a granular level, we can really say, what is our focus here? What are we trying to do? You can look at their game plan and the way that they do things and say, here's what they're going to want to do. Here's how we want to respond. Here's what we think is going to work best. So here are the examples, and I, I love this so much because, again, it just it really goes into depth on what I just said. He talks about the Rams game. When rewatching the film on the Rams game, it's clear that quarterback Baker Mayfield badly wanted to access throws up the seam and across the middle of the field. It's also clear that Joe Barry and his staff made a concerted effort to take those throws away. So we know what you want to do. We're not going to let you do it. And they can do that every single team, no matter what. All you need is a defensive coordinator and, and, a, and a, a staff that is going to be able to identify successfully what the team wants to do, has a right call in terms of coverages and whatever that we're going to do and adjustments we're going to make to try to take that away. But then number three, you need to have the personnel. And I think we have all three. He says they did so by playing a number of cover eight snaps, which as explained above is a quarter, uh, half quarter, quarter coverage with the cover two side to the passing strength. So, I mean, I, I generally understand. I don't know why that would be the case, but he doesn't need to get into that. In my mind, you're going to put the guy, the most guys over where the, the biggest problem is, but I'm an idiot and I don't know. So the cover two side is, is the one safety covering half the field. You put that on the passing strength. I don't know if that's, I'm guessing that strength means numbers, not necessarily ability. So if you had three wide receivers on one side, Justin Jefferson on the other, you'd put the cover two over where the three guys are. That's my guess. I don't know. On these snaps, Barry and company had their nickel corner, in this case, Keyshawn Nixon, play an aggressive form of zone match coverage. Despite starting off in a zone alignment, he carries any vertical stemming route across the field. So what this looks like to a quarterback is you watch Keyshawn Nixon and he's going to drop into zone. 
And so the quarterback's thinking he's in zone coverage. So once my guy gets clear of him, he'll be open. The difference is once he runs into his into Keyshawn Nixon's zone, he doesn't just run through it. Keyshawn Nixon is no longer playing zone. He's going to run up the field with him. And that's going to mess with the quarterback because he thinks he's got a, a matchup that he likes and he's getting ready to throw it and suddenly things change. And now what are you going to do? Do you come off of it? Do you wait? Do you, uh, uh, messes with you says using this call and style of coverage helps remove stress on the intermediate defenders who don't have to worry as much about gaining depth to combat intermediate routes from the slot. And again, th- th- this is where that hesitation comes in for pass rush. The the result of this play, I didn't even realize this, but the result of the play was a sack, which is exactly what you think because you're ready for it, right? And in this case, he wasn't running up the seam. He was running across the field. So Keyshawn Nixon drops into zone and Baker Mayfield knows he's going to run into that zone. He's going to run, t- you know, into the middle of the field, and eventually he's going to come free, and he'll be behind the linebackers in front of the safeties and in between the corners playing zone. He's got that soft spot right there. So he's going to pat the ball, pat the ball, wait for it, and here Keyshawn Nixon starts running with him. What the heck are you doing? You're not supposed to be there. So now you panic, and at this point it's too late, and he takes a sack. Next, uh, The next play that he shows is, is the same thing. It's cover eight, and, and Nixon is going to do the same thing, except this time it is a, a, a seam up the middle. He calls it a bender which meant something else to me in my younger days. But again, Baker sees it. He thinks that he's going to come free. And, and at, you know, once, once he gets almost parallel with Nixon, Nixon just turns and runs with him. So now he has to come off that and try to throw it somewhere else. And again, he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And he finally says, forget this, and turns and tries to throw somewhere else. At this point, our defenders are, are getting close enough, smacks his arm, and Jair picks the ball off. And, and again, the reason I love stuff like this is interceptions are fleeting. And there's no reason to believe that they're actually, you know, real. In other words, there's every reason to believe that they're going to just fall off the face of the earth and we're going to have zero in this game. But when you have something tangible like this, there's a reason why they're happening. And it's not just dumb luck. It's not just quarterbacks being concussed and being stupid and, you know, Cousins is trash and Baker's a dummy. And why would you throw that pass? You da, 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 da. When you force a quarterback, first of all, when you confuse them, and it was the same thing that happened with Tua's, I think, last interception. They, first of all, the Packers said flat out, we know that he plays with a lot of anticipation, and we're going to take advantage of that. In other words, he throws early, which means he makes his de- decisions on what the defense is doing early. And as a result, when it looks like, I think it was Keyshawn or whoever it was, or maybe it was Jair, is playing man coverage, but then suddenly bails and drops into zone and cuts off underneath a pass that you're trying to go to, you can talk concussion all you want. That's confusing the quarterback and getting up in his head. That's taking advantage of a guy who makes decisions early. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but just a couple other things here in the Miami game. It says for much of the game, the defense played with six-man fronts. They used two high coverages with the overhang players aligned down at the line of scrimmage. They did this for several reasons. It allowed them to create one-on-ones to more readily counteract the Dolphins' rushing attack while still keeping both safeties back to protect against Miami's explosive receivers. And equally important, the Packers uh, formed these fronts in order to help disrupt the vertical RPO game that has become the staple of the uh, the Dolphins' offense. Quay Walker played an important role in this endeavor. Barry frequently had him up at the line of scrimmage in 6-1 or 4-3 personnel packages, using his length and size to disrupt wide receivers as they released. And then the clip below, it shows Quay Walker knocks the number one receiver off his path, destroying the route spacing. Green Bay's two high coverages, it looks like quarters here, condenses space well and creates another turnover. And funny enough, this is the play that uh, Tyreek Hill, they're saying... Well, you know, it was, it was the massive overthrow of Tyreek Hill. Well, that's the play Quay Walker gave him a good hard shove and kind of threw him off the route of where he's supposed to be standing at. 
Not saying it wasn't a bad throw. I'm saying it's a lot more nuanced than just saying Tua was concussed and was just slinging the ball into our defender's hands 24-7. goes on to uh, mention a couple other ways that we use this to help against Miami. At several points in the game, they played a version of too high that tightly matched routes on the outside, creating what almost looked like man coverage for Tua. And then later in the game, on a crucial final drive, Barry switched up this tendency. Before the snap, the alignment of Green Bay's outside corners would seem to indicate a similar style of tight match coverage. As a result, Tua expected the smash route on the bottom of the clip to be open. Instead, cornerback Rizul Douglas drops off the underneath route and sinks under the smash route to secure the pick. This is exactly what I was just talking about. We made it look, and, and, and not only that, again, they were setting this up the whole game to give him the impression that on these situa- in these situations, you will be able to do this. But they made an adjustment so that instead of Razul doing what he'd been doing all game, he did something else, and he ends up getting a pick. It's not because of a concussion. And then he talks about the Vikings and says, in this case, they show how they can use it to match a specific opponent. In this case, that would be Justin Jefferson. They turned to a multitude of coverages uh, to do so. Perhaps the most obvious adjustment to fans is allowing Jair to aggressively jam Jefferson, which is weird because I thought... I thought Jair didn't do anything in this game. But anyways, to do so, they had Jair spend much of the game shadowing the star receiver while the defense played either cover six or cover eight, depending on where Jefferson aligned. Here, Jefferson lines up as the number one receiver. Green Bay's playing cover eight. Jair doesn't have to worry about getting beat deep and can violently disrupt Jefferson's relief. Which, and again, that really goes to having guys that really understand things. Your job and your assignment is so heavily dependent on understanding the game plan, your opponent, and what everybody else around you is doing. Jair knows he doesn't have to worry about anything deep. That affects how he plays him. And if you mess that up and Jefferson gets behind you and you get scared and try to overrun him, what happens? They can run a comeback route or a curl route or something and you can get killed. And so that was a big part of this game plan is we're going to have help over the top so that you can just jam them up real hard at the line of scrimmage. You're effectively taking away all the timing routes. Every time the quarterback is looking and at, at a certain point in my drop, you should be here and he looks and he's not there. And consistently, he's not there. And, and Vikings fans are mad, wondering why Kirk Cousins stopped looking his way. That's why. And then he says, uh, finally, the Packers use a flexibility of cover eight to counteract a formational advantage. Here, the Vikings align in a four-by-one formation, overloading one side of the field in order to regain a numbers advantage. The Packers use a tricks call, essentially locking the backside cornerback, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand. It doesn't matter. The point is, it even has that ability. They're, they're trying to find a way to gain an advantage. And so they say, we're going to overlide one, over, what the heck is the thing? Overload. There it is, not override. Brain's getting toasted. Overload one side of the field. Well, we got a coverage for that. We got a call for that. Suddenly, you don't have that advantage anymore. Doesn't do you any good. So again, this, this more or less just answers my question of, is there something tangible in it? And it really does. Um, really quickly... I want to, uh, we're running very rapidly out of time. I don't even think we took a break yet. Let's do that now. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. I want to look at, um, again, the coverage being more important than the pass rush, and then uh, get really quickly through my score predictions for Sunday. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, 
kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. By the way, I forgot to mention, um, there is still a giveaway of a Paul Horning jersey. The drawing for that will end on Monday. So please, 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 if you're thinking of giving it all to Fertile Ground Ranch Discipleship Ministry, please do so. A $5 donation to FertileGroundRanch.org will get you entered in to win. Every additional $5 is an additional entry. So 5 bucks is an entry, $50 is 10 500 is 100 $5 million is a million. Five billion would be a billion. If you got five trillion, your odds are pretty good getting the jersey. No guarantees, but fairly good. Also, if you have five trillion dollars, Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash back underscore All right. Um, so I found some interesting stuff here, and I want to thank Ham Ham Solman. What is wrong with my brain, dude? Sam Holman for uh, inadvertently sending me here, but. Um, some studies that were done to talk about the importance of coverage as being more important than pass rush. There's a couple articles here, but the summary that they have written from Eager, uh, Sam or Eric Eager, and uh, George Chirauri over at PFF doing their data studies says the correlation between team level coverage grades and EPA allowed per pass play during the season is roughly negative 0.69. Uh, EPA correlates with pass rush at roughly negative 0.23. PFF grades and coverage explain more about what happens in the passing game in a given season than pass rush grades do. Coverage grades both explain and predict defensive success better than pass rush, but they come at the expense of year-to-year stability at both the player and team level. So I want to kind of rewind a little bit. This is the uh, Eric Eager and George whatever May 7th, 2019. So yes, the data has been out there for a while. PFF data study, coverage versus pass rush. Um, and it, it starts off by talking about the investment teams will make in pass rushers, right? Kansas City Chiefs decided to trade their first round pick and a 2020 second round pick to the Seattle Seahawks for Frank Clark and then give him a five-year, $105 million deal. The Chiefs internally felt that Clark was worth the second biggest contract among edge rushers, while many analysts, including us, were less bullish on the move in our case, because we value coverage very much relative to pass rush. I also, you might remember, has always been very anti-Frank Clark, which I think I've been, um, I think I was proven right in that, but it wasn't so much because I was anti-pass rush. I just didn't like Frank Clark all that much. But then it goes on to, again, say, you know, this upends everything we think we know. Pass rushers, you know, you look at Lawrence Taylor and all these guys and how important we think they are. Our perception that pass rush is king on defense is due to a few factors. First, the pass rush absolutely does affect the offense. In any measure, pass rush decreases not only the effectiveness of an offense, but also our ability to reliably predict they and their quarterback's effectiveness. Second, the game has changed in substantial ways since many of us started viewing it. During the PFF era alone, first down passes have increased from 47% of plays to almost 52% of plays. Uh, Time to throw uh, and play action percentages have gone down and up during that stretch, respectively, in many ways, mitigating the effect that the pass rushers can have on an offense. In other words, offenses are finding ways to take away the effectiveness of pass rush. 
So if you have an aggressive pass rush, we've got play action, even things like I've talked about with motion. You've got the wide, or the, the running back screens when you have an overly aggressive defense, we drop, drop it off. And effectively what these will do, although not perfectly, is slow down your ability to even utilize those elite pass rushers that you have, especially if you're being more aggressive in terms of bringing more pass rushers. Goes on to say, lastly, the way the game is broadcast has a big effect on the way we perceive the relationship between coverage and pass rush. Before the proliferation of All-22, we only saw the relationship between coverage and pressure in one direction, the pass rush affecting the integrity of the quarterback's delivery and, in turn, enhancing the coverage on the back end. We are less inclined to view the other direction as equally meaningful. The one we're... The one where the quarterback has to go to a second read gives the pass rush more time to get home, often further helping coverage. So, uh, yeah, when we watch the game, we see the pass rushers. We don't really see the coverage guys. We don't really see the him going to a second read. I mean, we kind of do, but it doesn't really hit us the same way a sack or a pressure does. Getting into the uh, statistical analysis, narratives and anecdotes are fine and well, but let us explore what our data says goes on to explain their uh, grading scale, negative 1 to 2 in increments of 0.5. And the bottom line is they chart these things out, as I said. And they look at the sort of negative relationship between a PFF coverage grade and EPA added on a play and pass rush grades, uh, the negative relationship between the pass rush grades and the EPA. And if you just look at the line, which they have in this article, if you want to go find it, uh, again, Uh, PFF data study coverage versus pass rush. It's drastic. Again, uh, the the non-visual representation is negative 0.69 compared to negative 0.23. The negative 0.23, certainly a correlation, but we're talking literally three times the correlation, which is almost to say, and I'm, I'm speaking out of turn here, but you could almost glean that a corner is not only more important or that coverage, I guess you could say, because there are more people in coverage than you have rushing the passer, so you may be divided. But coverage is three times more important than pass rush. I think the one interesting thing is, because again, I'm not necessarily talking about building a team going forward. This is about what's more important in season. Coverage is more important than pass rush. However, they do talk about the stability from year to year of pass rushers as opposed to coverage guys. So in other words, you can probably trust in the stability of Rashawn Gary being very good, more so than you can trust in Jair or Amos, or or any of these other guys. And so if you're talking about building a team, they talked about, for example, the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles were a good way of doing it, and that was taking Barnett, the edge rusher, with their first pick, and then the second round, second and third round, they went with uh, uh, cornerbacks, but they also signed Patrick Robinson and traded for Ronald Darby before the regular season because uh, the, the, the picture is essentially you can invest high in really good pass rushers because it's going to be a really good long-term investment for you, even if it's not as good as a really good corner. But the corners are probably going to have to be kind of stitched together. You're going to have to find on a year-to-year basis how to have a really good secondary. But that's, again, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about right now, this is the team we have. What should the focus be? The focus should always be coverage. All right. Um... Let's quickly rip through some of the predictions. This week is going to be stupid. I wish I had started this earlier because I had such a good week last week. I'd be curious to see what my season record would be. If it was anything even close to last week, I would dominate every professional better in the world. But um, week 18 is going to be so stupid because you've got, for example, the Vikings and Bears, but the Bears are sitting some of their starters. And there's also the motivation factor going into some of these games, you know, whether teams are already in and, you know, 
we can pretend it doesn't affect people, but maybe they're going to take a little bit off. Um, then you've also got the the Bills and the Bengals, and you know everybody's assuming, well, they're going to play out of their mind and play really, really well because of what happened. But you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's the other way where their mind they're a little bit distracted, they're a little bit gun shy. They you know they they've got some unresolved emotional issue. You know, you don't know how it's going to affect. So there's there's so many things, especially this week, that make things weird. But we'll do our best. We'll kind of look at some of the data and information and whatnot and come to some conclusions. And I'll give you my best thoughts on uh, the games. Anyways, I think last week, I just looked at it real quick, but it's hard to tell because I know I bet, like the worst bet of all time, Arizona and Atlanta. I think I picked Atlanta to win, Arizona to cover, and I hit on both. (laughs) Should never do that, but I did it, and I hit on both. But I think I was 11 out of 14 last week. And then the Cincinnati-Buffalo game obviously did not. I think I bet twice on that, so that would have been... 16 total bets, but I think those two just were scratched. So the final tally, I believe, was 11 correct out of 14 bets I made last week. So again, I have no expectation of hitting that again, partially because just mathematically that would be stupid. Um, But also, again, because it's such a weird week. But let's go ahead and do's it anyways. So for the record, um, I've already told you what my score predictions are for the Green Bay Packers, and I've already placed my bets. I did it very early on just because I didn't want that line to move. I'm expecting that if the Seattle Seahawks win, it's going to be a more uh, favorable line for Detroit or Packers, or however you want to phrase that, and so it's going to be harder to bet. So I wanted to get it in kind of early because I thought that might continue to move. Um, also, I know this is Sunday and yesterday's games are already done, but uh, I'll tell you what I did so you can tell me if I'm stupid or not, because you obviously already know the outcome, but I did take the over on the Raiders, Kansas city chiefs game. Again, kind of weird. I don't know what the chiefs are planning on doing. I know they have to play. The Raiders are also weird with the whole quarterback situation. However, last week I told you I had, for example, Raiders 49ers. I don't remember exactly what my bet was. I'm guessing it was Raiders to cover, but I had the 49ers winning by a pretty small margin. And that was just because the Raiders are a very good home team. And that was an underrated thing. Going up against the 49ers, they still were projected to have somewhat, depending on how you looked at it, of a high score. And so everybody then the next week is like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. This quarterback's amazing. The Raiders are great. And it's like, no, that was just kind of an expected outcome. And it's the same thing now, except the 40, the Chiefs don't have nearly as good of a, of a defense as the 49ers do. So I'm tempted to take the under against Kansas City. I may ultimately do that. I've got it 28-33 Kansas City and 33-38 to Kansas City. So Kansas City wins both, but I just feel like nine points is a lot. I've got it at about five, six points. But ultimately, I feel just a little bit better with the over. They've got it set at 52 and a half. I have in both cases uh, it cracking 60. So I'm just going to go with that, especially again, because things are so weird. Let's just go with the more obvious picks. So high scoring affair, closer than most people think, but ultimately falling in Kansas City's favor. And then Jacksonville, Tennessee, Jacksonville, six and a half point favorites. I've got this one pretty well dialed in on both accounts here. I've got Tennessee. Again, I do two different point totals, uh, 17.7, 18.7. So call it 18, 19. And then Jacksonville, I have 24 points for both, 24.01, So Call it 1724-ish. So 17 or uh, I've got it about six to seven points and they have it at six and a half. So I don't like I don't like that generally. Um, there is the Dobbs factor though, with Ryan Tannehill being out and Josta and, and, and 
understand, I don't know how much of a factor this is going to have, generally speaking, even like with the Raiders uh, last time when, when Carr was out the door, you a lot of people assumed it would be a bigger deal than it was, and I ended up not wanting to overreact to that, and I think that worked to my advantage. However, Dobbs is bad, man. Um, so the, the, the tough part here is, based on what I've got, I've got it rated about six and a half. I could take the over because I've got it at about 42. They have it at 40. But I could easily see scoring two less points in this game because of Dobbs. So I think what I'm going to do just to be safe, I'm just going to take Jacksonville to win. But again, the interesting part about all this will be to see how close to the score total it was. If again, it's kind of close, then I'm going to further solidify the fact that changing quarterbacks, you know, not the worst thing. Now, now this is there's a difference between benching, releasing, whatever you want to call it, a quarterback and a quarterback going on, on IR. But there still seems to be that rally factor, especially early on, and it might taper over time. But that first week, although this is the second week now and the first week was trash, but I don't know, man. I, I just, I don't feel good about it. I'm tempted to pick the, pick the Jaguars to cover because even with essentially the Tannehill numbers, I've got it at about six and a half. Although I do have it, maybe I'll just do it. I don't know, man. No, I'm going to be a coward. I'm just going to pick Jacksonville to win. I'm too scared of this Dobbs situation. Plus, it's a divisional game. It's, there's so much on the line. I mean, these things are always kind of wonky. So um, I'm going to stick with wanting to bet every game if I am not too scared. But uh, I'm a little bit scared. There's also a lot of offensive line concerns for the Tennessee Titans um, from center over to right tackle. As in center right guard and right tackle. You got guys that I believe are starting that have not really played very much. On top of just having a bad offensive line to begin with. It's kind of a mess. So Jaguars win the game. Um, Baltimore Ravens and the Cincinnati Bengals is the next one I'm going to be looking at. Um, it sounds like I was looking at a video here. They had uh, seven and a half for Cincinnati. I like that a lot better. It's all the way to nine now for Cincinnati. Partly because Lamar, I guess, is probably definitely not going to be playing. I don't know. Not that it really mattered all that much because Lamar was not playing all that much better than Huntley, which is the exact same conversation we were having a year ago when Lamar got hurt and wasn't playing. But anyways, on top of that, Baltimore is just a disaster. Um, do you know who their wide receivers are in Baltimore? They have uh, Deshaun Jackson, who started playing in Week 9, and Sammy Watkins. Uh, so yeah, that that and Demarcus Robinson, but that's just hilarious. And Jackson's not even playing that bad. It's just hilarious that you've got 36-year-old Deshaun Jackson and 30-year-old Sammy Watkins um, kind of holding it down at wide receiver with... Tyler Huntley at quarterback. I mean, I like their offensive line, running back, tight end, etc. But the Bengals are just kind of a different animal. So again, it's a weird thing, especially with what happened on Monday. And I don't know how that's going to impact things. I have the final score at um, the two scores. I have 14 to 25 Cincinnati, which is right at nine points and 19.5 and 27. So if it's 20 to 27, that would be under. I don't like the nine-point spread, even though I think Cincinnati is going to eviscerate Baltimore. It's just a heavy, it's a big number. And again, I don't know what to think of Cincinnati. Again, the feel-good narrative that you can just throw around is they're going to crush it because, you know, they're so motivated and all that stuff. And I understand that's the feel-good narrative, but I don't actually know how people are feeling. Same with Buffalo. Like, I, I want them to do well. I want this to be a, a invigorating thing. But for all I know, I mean, we don't know where their head's at. 
after what they went through. So, um, again, I'm going to be a coward. I'm just going to pick Cincinnati to win because even the over-under isn't great. They've got it at 39 and a half. I, I guess I could... Uh, no, because I've got one under and one over, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to pick the Bengals to win. Maybe I should parlay some of these just to make it a little bit more interesting. Another tough one is Jets-Dolphins, uh, largely because of the quarterback situation in Miami with Tua being out. Um, Skylar Thompson, likely quarterback. I know Teddy Bridgewater's been there, but he constantly keeps getting hurt. Skylar keeps coming in. I don't really know what's going on, but Skylar's not very good at football, which sucks because this is a pretty straightforward situation where Miami should be able to absolutely stomp out the Jets. But again, not really understanding the quarterback situation makes things tough. So Skylar Thompson versus Joe Flacco, yikes. But I've got a really low scoring. Um, Only in one scenario does one of the teams crack 20, um, and that's Miami at 21.29. But that's 15 to 21 and 13 to 19 or 13 to 20 if you round up. I don't have the Jets scoring any points. Maybe a little better with Flacco. It doesn't really matter. The other thing, too, is the Jets are not playing for anything anymore. Miami is. I think I'm going to take Miami at minus three. I shouldn't because things are weird with the quarterback situation, but I'm going to anyways. I've got it at seven points and six points, and I'll just look at the disgruntled Jets going back-to-back road games, who, by the way, have not even put up 10 points since uh, week 15 to, uh, to really suck this game up. All right, we'll try to pick up the pace here. We got uh, Texans-Colts. This game is absolutely hilarious because you just got horrific offenses. The uh, Houston Texans on the road, Colts uh, at home. The offensive points, Houston is averaging 17 points a game, Indy 17.5 points a game. They're both giving up about the same, 22 and 20, uh, 22 and 21, basically. But then they have <laughs> their DVOAs for offense. Again, this is uh, adjusted for home and away. Negative 29.5 and negative 24.5. The only competent anything is Indy at home, their defense, negative 5.9. But the final scores are um, 14.6 to 16.7, so 15.17 and 16.18, both in favor of Indy. Sure enough, Indy, two and a half point favorites. And then the over-under set at 38, which I'll probably take the under. I think the only weird thing, because I don't think anyone's sitting their starters. They're two trash teams. Um, not that that necessarily matters. The Bears are sitting fields. But um, I think Ellinger is the quarterback, but he's been there for a couple weeks, and I don't really think it moves the needle. And if it does, it moves it downward, and that works for my under prediction. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the under, which is hilarious, on a game that has an over-under set at um, 38. Cleveland-Pittsburgh, I actually do have um, one going in Pittsburgh's favor, one going very minorly, and I'm talking by about 0.6 points in the favor of Cleveland. But um, 19 to 24, Pittsburgh wins, and then about 20 to 19, Cleveland wins. I really don't like any of these. Um, Again, I can't even pick a team to win because in one instance I have Cleveland. Um, I don't have Pittsburgh obviously covering. I don't like Cleveland at plus two, five, and even the over-under, I've got it over on one and under on the other, so um, I think I'm going to just leave that one go and uh, not bet it. Tampa and Atlanta, pretty wild scores here. Um, probably not what a lot of people expect, but again, as I mentioned last week, Tampa at home, Tampa on the road, very different animal. Last week, you might even remember I had projected that 
on one of the scores, I said Tampa Bay would get to about 30. And I, and I said, well, you could probably throw that one out because they haven't done that all year. Probably not going to happen. What happened? Tampa hit 30 last week. So uh, I got to learn to trust my own numbers. And I'm going to have to do that again because as much as everybody's hyping up Tampa Bay, I've got Tampa Bay losing in one instance 15 to 22 and winning in the other 19-15. Either way, Tampa Bay scoring 15 and 18 points on average on the road. Tampa Bay is scoring less than 15 points per game. And with Atlanta having a pretty mediocre defense, slightly below average, but fairly mediocre, uh, that only moves them up to about 15 points in one instance. So I don't even have them cracking 20. The Falcons in this game are four-point favorites. I'm assuming that's because Tampa is expected to rest all their starters. As I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, Tampa is one of the few teams that is 100% locked in. They cannot go up or down in their standings. Now, with that said, apparently they're saying that um, the starters are going to play. So I, I kind of hate it because I wish Tampa Bay was big-time favorites in this game because then I could sound all super smart and be like, yeah, well, you don't even know. But with Atlanta being four-point favorites, that kind of sucks because I'm kind of straddling that prediction. The only thing I am t- tempted to do here is to take the under um, because my two predictions have it at 34 and 37 and the over-under set at 40. And then if you factor in, if, if they do end up benching some of their starters, let's say Tom Brady does start, but it's only for a quarter or a half, I have to assume that's going to impact the scores downward. So I am going to take the under in that game. Carolina, New Orleans, got New Orleans winning fairly comfortably in both instances, 17-25 um, to 25 in one, 21-26 in the other, which would be a five-point victory, which would be the smaller of the two. New Orleans is only three-and-a-half-point favorites in this game. I know Carolina has come on relatively strong in the uh, in recent history. This is also a divisional game, as pretty much all these games are, or maybe all of them. I think all of them actually definitively are. I was wondering. I wonder if they do that because they want to prevent people from sitting their starters, or they think that maybe that'll help in that way. I don't know. Or it just makes it more interesting because they know people are going to sit. But hey, if it's Packers Bears, you're going to watch it, even if guys are sitting their starters, kind of a thing. Um. The only question then is about who's playing. I do know Jarvis Landry went to IR for uh, the Saints, but that's not enough to necessarily make me come off of this. So I'm going to say the Saints win by more than 3.5 points. For the record, um, if you're not going to agree with me, this is probably the one not to agree with me on. I've gone through a lot of different um, podcasts and YouTube videos and professional betters. Everybody's on Carolina. Uh, They're real big on the Carolina hype train that they were beating up on Tampa Bay before they gave it up. Um, And the other thing I heard, the thing that was brought up is the Saints have reached 21 points only. So in other words, they haven't scored more than 21 points in the last one, two, three, four, five, six weeks. And so again, I, I have the point total over that, which is a pretty high risk proposition. The thing is, though, again, remember, this is at home. They have a higher point total at home. Now, still, even at home, they haven't quite hit that. Well, that's not really true. The lot, So they've been on the road constantly. They played against Philly, really good defense. They hit 20, and that was on the road. 17 against the Browns, another good defense again on the road. They hit 21 against the Falcons. Before that, it was Tampa on the road. San Francisco on the road. Two good defenses, both on the road. Prior to that was, on the, was the Rams at home. They hit 27. So yes, if you look at their offense, the last several weeks, it hasn't looked great. The only acceptable game is the one that they were at home. All the other ones, all four, four out of their last five games have been on the road. It is a brutal schedule. And against, again, really good defenses, the Eagles, the 49ers, 
And then you got Tampa and the Browns, who I don't know exactly what their standings are right now, but these are guys that could absolutely get after you. And if you're a subpar team like the Saints are, especially their offense, not their defense, that's gonna it's going to be brutal. So I'm going to stick with it. Up to you. Do whatever you want. Minnesota-Chicago makes me want to cry um, because I want to back Chicago so bad. I, I want them to beat Minnesota, and they still may. Obviously, you have to take into account Justin Fields, and that's that's going to be a big thing um, because he's not going to be playing in this game. Now, again, remember, not a good passer, but he is pretty much their entire offense. Even though he's not passing, he's running. That's their entire offense. Now, maybe you get somebody that's a slightly better passer. They can get the passing game going in addition to the run game, which still works without Justin Fields, just not obviously as well. Um, And you can still make an offense out of it. But the score predictions I have, and I kid you not, this is based on Minnesota on the road, Chicago at home. 22-22, to which is in Minnesota's favor. It's actually 22.4 compared to 21.7. The other, 19-26 to in Chicago's favor. The reason for the 26 for Chicago, by the way, Minnesota gives up 26.7 points on average while on the road, and Chicago is just barely a subpar offense at home, negative 2.35 DVOA. So that drops down to just 26. That's compared to Chicago only giving up 24.5 points while at home, which again is better than 26, and Minnesota having an even worse defense than Chicago. That's how you get to the 26-18. The other is based on their offenses compared to the defensive DVOA, in which case Minnesota's offense is slightly better than Chicago's, 21.7 compared to 20.3 or 20.4. I think I said that backwards. It, It doesn't matter. You get the point. I want so desperately to pick Chicago and be right, but the Justin Fields factor is is kind of killing me. And the funny thing is, and I had heard this before, I don't remember exactly where when I was going through doing my research and whatnot, the Chicago Bears opened as I think one-point underdogs. Minnesota, The Minnesota Vikings, playoff bound, what do they have, 12, 13 wins? I can never remember. Up against the Chicago Bears, who are universally seen as the worst, second worst, or third worst team, bottom three team in the NFL. Not really a lot of debate about that. The Vikings were only one-point favorites. And then when Justin Fields went out, it jumped up to seven. Now, I'm still tempted to jump on Chicago for a couple reasons. Number one, again, I don't, I don't think it's impossible Chicago can find enough of an offense. Number two, I think when you've seen Chicago do a pretty good job recently, it's the defense, right? Philadelphia Eagles just not able to move the ball. And, you know, again, eventually these guys, the, the dam broke. But it was the defense kind of being able to hold them back a little bit. But then beyond that, Minnesota, when they do win, they don't win by seven. Now, I understand this is a, a, a special circumstance because it's end-of-the-year Chicago Bears and they're resting their starters. But remember, they just went up against the Colts recently and had a four and a half point spread and couldn't cover it. The Colts are every bit as bad as Chicago. And the Colts were up 33, what, 33 to three at halftime? When I said bottom three teams, I'm talking Houston, Chicago, and Indianapolis. Those are the three bottom teams in football. And Indy was up on Minnesota 33 to whatever. And now you're going to give seven points to Minnesota over Chicago because a hapless Justin Fields isn't playing? And again, remember, offense is only half of the equation. Minnesota still has to do something with their defense. Now, I am a little worried that this is going to be a statement game for Minnesota. Just came off an embarrassing loss to the Green Bay Packers. The Vikings have not lost two games in a row. They bounced back from every single one. Um, And each time they did it, they scored a bunch of points. Uh, They weren't big wins, obviously, because the Vikings don't do that. But after their... Uh, lost 7-24, to they scored 28. 
After losing, only scoring three against Dallas, they scored 33. And then after losing to Detroit, scoring 23, they scored 39, which I believe is their season high. So they come back strong. I will point out, though, every single one of those comebacks was at home. And in two out of those three, the losses were on the road, and then they go home and they score a bunch of points. This is a loss on the road and then on the staying on the road. The only other time they had back-to-back road games, they did beat Buffalo, but they also beat Washington the week before. So, man, I'm, I'm so unbelievably torn on this. The only thing that I, I just enjoy genuinely is just the prospect that it might happen. I don't really know what to do with this. I'm, I'm, the only thing I could really think is to really dig into DVOA and also uh, points added, um, because that's, that's a direct relation to how many points extra you're going to put on the field. Because if you look at, for example, DVOA, Justin Fields is dead last. 36.1%, uh, excuse me, 35.7% worse than your average quarterback. Dead last in the NFL. The second worst is Matt Ryan at negative 22. He's negative 35. So again, the idea that we're going to move from Minnesota being one-point favorites to seven-point favorites because the absolute worst quarterback by a mile in football is not playing is crazy to me. And I understand those, those, those two big run plays that are going to happen in the game aren't going to be there. But in terms of consistent quarterback play, there's every reason to believe that the passing will be as good, if not better. Every reason in the world. And unfortunately, I think they're playing Peterman because I can see Trevor Simeon out of Chicago here. And he has a negative 18.2 DVOA, which is twice as good as Justin Fields is. So you know what? Just just out of spite, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the Bears uh, at minus seven. I'm not going to take them to win the game. Again, I have the Vikings winning in one and the Bears winning in the other. But even where I have the Vikings winning, it's by less than a point. It's by seven-tenths of a point. And in the case of Chicago winning, it's by seven and a half points. Chicago winning. So again, I get the Justin Fields thing. I get that Minnesota's got a bounce-back game coming. I get that there's a couple reasons to be really scared about this. And, And it's entirely possible that Minnesota gets their first big victory of the season. But there's also a lot of reasons not to. So we're going Chicago here. Uh, next is Bills in New England. Um, the Bills, although the Chiefs, I just saw the game, did win. Um, the Bills are still trying to volley for either the number two or number three spot. Um, so they should be playing their starters, New England likewise. Um, the biggest, obviously, is with the uh, Hamlin situation and how that impacts things. But I think it's best to just kind of leave it as is. And I have uh, the Buffalo Bills winning in both instances. In one case, 27 to 22, and in one, 26 to 17. So I have them winning by five and winning by eight. Buffalo has a seven and a half point line here. I'm also straddling the over under 41 and uh, 48, 49 ish. The line is set at 43 and a half. So I will take the Bills to win the game, and I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, Even that is somewhat risky because, again, I don't really know what is going to happen. Um, I'm guessing it will be an emotional game. If I'm assuming it's being played. I I, uh, had heard some people saying that that's not even 100%, so I I don't know. Um, But I will pick Buffalo to win, and I will leave it at that. 
Uh, next game, Giants and Eagles is actually kind of interesting because usually it's the really, really good teams that kind of mail it in um, and sit their players, and then the not-so-good teams don't. But in this case, I think Philadelphia is actually going to be trying really hard because they're actually battling for something, whereas the Giants are locked into their spot. And so I've got the score totals at 20-30 uh, to 30 for Philly and 27-20 uh, for Philly. I don't exactly know um, who's playing and who's not. And I think Jalen Hurts is going to play, but maybe not the whole game. So that's kind of weird. The line is actually, it's at the Eagles being 16-point favorites. And I have to assume that's based on the Eagles are playing their starters and the Giants are not. Um, The Giants will have quarterback Davis Webb playing. um, And I'm not even entirely sure who else is going to be getting benched and and who's going to be playing. but that's uh, that's tough, man. 16 points. Yikes. Here's, here's the biggest thing, I think, with this 16-point line is, okay, so you have a hurt Jalen Hurts. You're in the playoffs. That's 100% locked up. I'm trying to get the number one seed, but, you know, whatever. Obviously, being able to succeed in the playoffs is the most important thing. If you've got a lead and you're getting kind of carried away, there, there's no reason to get carried away. A 16-point win, we're talking 31-15. I just feel like the Eagles are, are going to take their foot off the gas at some point if they start to get out to somewhat of a comfortable lead. It's just such a big number. But ultimately, I tell you what, um, I'm just not going to bet it. And the reason being, I have a very specific thing that I do, and this is outside of the realm of what it is I'm doing. Absolutely, if all things were equal, I would be taking the Giants, but they're not. And you have a Giants team that is sitting their starters and saying, we just don't care. And the Eagles, even knowing they're sitting their starters, are like, we're going to play our injured quarterback, and he's going to go out there, and, and we're going to lay up some points, and we're going to put this thing away and lock up that number one spot and risk injury to key players. Um even just from a mentality standpoint, I'm just I'm not touching that. Plus, I just don't like the Giants. They kind of suck. Rams Seahawks. I've got it 25 to 14 Seattle and 28 to 17 Seattle. Seattle obviously has everything to play for. The Rams have nothing to play for. But spoiler, and I intend for I expect them to play that role. So I'm just going to stick with those points. Seattle are six point favorites, and I don't think that's nearly enough. So I'm very comfortably in the uh, on the side of the Seahawks on this one, which obviously is bad news for the Detroit Lions. Also very good news for us. Probably the biggest game of the week uh, for us, aside from our game. So this is the game we're going to want to watch. And again, I've got them winning by, she's 11 and 11 in both cases, 11 points. And they're six-point favorites. So um, any given Sunday... But I fully expect the Detroit Lions to be coming in with um, spoiler attitude because that's all they're going to have. And then the whining after the Packers beat the Lions, you know, because all you did was beat the Bears and then the stupid Rams and then concussed Tua and then fraud Vikings and then a Detroit Lions team that gave up even though everybody said no, they would never give up. Okay. Uh, Chargers, Denver. Denver Broncos are shockingly three-point favorites. So this one's kind of unfortunate because I'd love to be able to tell you that my score predictions actually have this really close, and in one of them, I have them winning by four points. However, because the Chargers are not necessarily locked in, but I think they're playing for like the five or the six seed or something like that, or the four or the five, I don't know. 
because of that, the assumption is the Chargers are going to be uh, sitting down Herbert at some point, and um, they're actually having the Denver Broncos as favorites in this game, um, which I don't feel super comfortable with, but I probably should if I have Denver actually winning this game, even with Herbert, and um, now potentially Herbert's going to be sitting. And also, again, it's it's entirely possible that this isn't really just because they're going to be sitting starters. It's because Vegas is looking at what I'm looking at, and what I'm looking at is a Chargers um, offense that only puts up you know less than 24 points on the road up against one of the more premier, prominent uh, defenses, allowing less than 17 points a game. So I guess either way, I should be a little bit more on Denver, even at three and a half points. I don't like the fact that I had Chargers at four-point winners because if if the score does end up with Herbert 20 to 16, now we're talking about a full eight-point swing. I had the Chargers winning by four, and they have to make up the three for Denver. And if Herbert ends up playing the whole game, who knows? I don't know, man. Again, we're not really in my wheelhouse with this. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the under. I have the final scores of this game being 35 and 35, basically, and the over-under set at 40. If you pull starters, it's only going to go lower, presumably. Starters on the offense, that is. Um, I mean, if they pull their starters on defense, that's only going to help Denver's offense, which is trash. So I'm taking the under, and I'm going to leave it at that. Arizona-San Francisco, 26-18 victory for San Francisco, and a 24-12 victory for San Francisco. You heard me. 49ers are 14-point favorites in this game. Again, I like San Francisco a lot, not quite that much. And um, I think since, I believe everybody's going to be starting, um, I mean, no Kyler, but that was the case last week as well. That's a separate issue. I mean, I don't think anyone's getting uh, benched. And even if you look at that, if you look at their offense, first of all, the Arizona Cardinals offense has been terrible for a very long time, especially this four-game losing streak after their bye, 13, 15, 16, and 19 points. And the highest score total of that was 19. Granted, probably the worst defense that they faced, but still no real reason to see a major offensive drop-off because David Blau is going to be uh, the quarterback. Although, of course, it is scary considering um, this one's in San Francisco. Last time was in Arizona, and San Francisco 49ers won by 28 points. But I'm going to stick with the old system, and I'm going to take the Arizona Cardinals to at least cover that monstrous spread. Finally, for the 17 of you still listening, Dallas and Washington. Uh, I have Dallas winning in both cases, scoring about 22. Washington scoring about 16. So 22 to 16 in both for the most part, 22.7 and 1. But for the sake of sounding really cool, 22 to 16. Dallas still has things to play for. As we went through yesterday, there's a couple different scenarios, including potentially even getting the number one seed. Uh, I don't know if that's still, I don't think anybody, those two AFC teams uh, games this today. So um, I believe that's still on the table. Really long shot, but still, I think if they win, 49ers and uh, Eagles lose, they get the one seed, something like that, something crazy. I don't know. Washington playing spoiler, so I'm just going to keep the uh, keep everything as is. Dallas Cowboys, seven-point favorites. I've got it at six, and one of them is about six and a half, so seven makes me really nervous. Over-under sitting at 40. I've got it at 38. Again, makes me kind of nervous. Um, I probably should just bet either or or both, but I'm kind of, I don't know, man. This week just has me kind of shaking a little bit. 
I think it's really close. I'm going to chicken out and just take Dallas to win the game. Because again, over-under is rated about where I have it. The spread is rated about where I have it. However, I do have Dallas winning relatively comfortably. Six to seven points. So I'm just going to take Dallas to win. So a lot of cowardly betting this week because of the craziness that's going on with all the games and whatnot. But I've got uh, Dallas winning the game, Arizona at plus 14, uh, the under 40 for Chargers-Broncos, um, taking the Seahawks at minus 6. I am taking the Bills to win the football game, the Bears at plus 7. I'm taking the under 40.5 for Tampa Bay and Atlanta. Um, under 38 for Texans-Colts. I've got uh, Miami at minus 3 against the Jets. Bengals beating the Ravens. And then, did I not bet the Chiefs game? Oh, that one's done. What did I, I think I just bet the Chiefs to win. Oh, no, I didn't. I had Chiefs Raiders over, so I lost that bet. Stupid Raiders, man. They couldn't put any points up. I should have, whatever, it's fine. Starting 0-1 is not how I want to start the week. And Tennessee's beating Jacksonville. So this is, this is, this is going to be, a, I, I know it's going to be a rough week. Man. That's why I'm playing scared, because I can just tell these games are not, not good. Anyways, I'm going to get out of here. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good day.